Our hometown shivers under the onset of the new Ice Age. Oh my God, it's cold. Which means stay indoors and screen watch this weekend. This week, Disney reworked the image of yet another popular villain in Loki. Pop off the Stephen King teams up with some highfalutin friends for Lacey's story. Sexy Spaniards woo each other in foodie love. And Dan revisits the show that set the standard for prestige TV. Plus, we've got horses, sharks and Christopher Walken. Let's start screen watching. It's not like TV only better. Television! Teacher! Mother! Secret lover. What, that's it? That's your movie? Well, I said that I had an idea for a movie. That's right. I'm Simon Foster. Welcome, everyone. Lots in the mix this week. We've got five new reviews to rev things up, including Stan's new series, Republic of Sarah. And for sports nuts, where to watch your wafer cup and the Aussie swimming trials. And when I think elite athlete, I think of my friend and co-host, Dan Barrett. How are you, Dan? Uh, good morning, Simon. I'm not cold and chilly at all this morning. <laughs> Uh, we record this relatively early in the morning, and as we look out across Sydney, it is a very chilly single-digit degree, I think. It's very cold. Look, today's going to be five degrees... We're talking about weather. How old man is this podcast starting out? <laughs> it's five degrees hotter today than it was yesterday, but I stepped out this morning and I could not see the streets at all, just covered in deep, deep fog. Oh, wow. Winter time in Sydney, it is really is a... It's a beautiful part of the world, but boy, we feel the chill. Not like other parts of the world, of course. If you're listening in the US, it's summer. Memorial Day's been and gone. The big movies are out. Um, none of them have hit here in Australia this week, to be honest. But um, hope you're enjoying the weather wherever you are. This is the Dan and Simon Weather Report. <laughs> we need a jingle. <laughs> hey, Simon. <laughs> what as, are we talking about this week, mate? Look, as much as I like talking about weather, and believe you me, I can do this for days, we've got to get straight into the reviews. It stinks. Now, legally, because you and I are both critics of both film and television, it means that we are on the Marvel payola and we do need to talk about the new Marvel TV show and give it a positive review because, as the internet's told me, that's what happens. I know what this place is. The timekeepers have built quite the circus. And I see the clowns are playing their parts to perfection. Big metaphor guy. I love it. Makes you sound super smart. I am smart. I know. Okay. Okay. Now look, there's almost zero value at all in reviewing a Marvel property. There's a Marvel TV show. If that's interesting to you, you're going to watch it. If that sounds like fingernails on a blackboard, you're not going to bother. And heck, it's been two days since the show debuted on Disney+. Plus. So if you're even half interested, you've probably already watched it by now. So me talking about it, it's not really going to inform or change your opinions whatsoever. However, in the spirit of creating content for the podcast, I can tell you this is a TV show about Loki. We've seen him in at least 95 different Marvel movies by now. He's played by Tom Hiddleston. And the series takes place in the moments after Loki's time traveled halfway through the last Avengers movie. The series graciously shows a clip from the movie as the intro to the series, which was a good reminder as to where we're at. It also felt cheap artistically. And with the level of star power in those scenes, it also made the scene feel like the most expensive opening to a TV show ever. The premise of the series is basically that there are time cops who keep everyone on the correct time stream. When somebody steps off it, as Loki has at the beginning of the series, they come after them, which is what happens here. We're also warned that if they don't do their job, it can lead to a fractured multiverse. Spoiler alert, the upcoming Doctor Strange movie is called Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness. Hiddleston is joined in the series by one of the cops played by Owen Wilson. I love stories about time travelers and I was set to adore the show but I really found it a chore to stay interested in the program. I've been more bored by this than I have, I think, any Marvel property so far. Now, I've never been that enthused by Loki in the films, and he didn't really do much to win me over here. The inclusion of Owen Wilson is great. He's got a fantastic moustache, and I really miss seeing him on my screen. And the show looks fantastic. The special effects are pretty spectacular in a mostly low-key manner, and the premise certainly has promise. I'm not tapping out of the show after the first episode, but it was pretty humdrum and I won't be racing to watch episode two. Yes, I uh, dabbled in this one as well. Uh, I was a bit surprised it was an hour long show coming in at sort of 58 minutes or something like that. Because it felt like three. <laughs> uh, look, I'm a fan of Tom Hiddleston. I like his work and I have liked his work as Loki, but it's always been essentially as kind of a comic relief almost character. Yes, he's a villain and yes, he's done some awful things in the name of uh, his cause, but... Um, 
he does it with a twinkle in his eye, and I think Hilston works in that regard. I think this series, while I generally agree with you that it seems a little almost unnecessary, I think the, the essence of it is going to be in the relationship between Owen Wilson and Hiddleston. It, I totally agree that it's great to see Owen Wilson as part of the MCU and uh, bringing some very deft and droll line readings to, to what he has to say as, as the character. Um, the rest of it I can take or leave as a as a, a introduction of the time variant police to, to measure the, the multiverse, I guess is clearly going to pay into, as you say, the next the next uh, big um, uh, Marvel um, movie, big screen adventure. Uh, but overall, this is one of the ones I may drift in and out of to have a look to see what's going on. Lovely production design, though. I quite like the idea of this um, other plane of existence that is a bureaucracy and um, the funniest moments in this was when he had to queue up in one of those snaking uh, uh, roped off areas where no one else was lined up or he had to take a ticket to see the judge played by the beautiful uh, Gugu and Beth Aurora, who's just um, extraordinary in this. Look, I, I had fun with that. That's who it was. I, I was watching her and I'm like, I know this actress that I could not quite pick where I knew her from. Yeah, yeah she was good. Cast is good. Um, I thought that opening special effects where he landed in the middle of the Gobi Desert was pretty tinny, very clearly re-projection. That looked like a, um, a bit of substandard work from the, 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 the effects team, but everything else, I guess, sort of uh, looked as good as you expected. They made up for it with the, the pan across the, the underground city or the, the parallel universe city that looked beautiful. So yes, a fairly minor entrant in the MCU, but probably worth checking out if you're already on board. So you suggested I thought the show was unnecessary. I don't think it's any less necessary than any other Marvel properties, but at the same time, I just felt that the execution of this episode was incredibly flat. I am hoping though that I'll find a bit more interest in episode two onwards because I like the premise and I like this as sort of sitting adjacent to the other types of environments we've seen within the MCU so far. I like the bureaucracy. I like that sort of Brazil like approach to Marvel. Like I think that's kind of fun. But ultimately, there's just nothing in a sound that really particularly grabbed me. It's called Loki. Let's give the little streamer a plug. They need all the help they can. Disney Plus is where you'll see this. Um, I took a look at a new Christopher Walken film this week called Percy versus Goliath. Monsanto's claiming the canola you grew in 97 contained a technology in the seeds gene that they created. I never bought their seed. Tests showed substantial contamination. Who are those men, Grandpa? Monsanto will say that everything you grew is their property. You sure got people talking. You stole Monsanto's seed. You know I'm not a thief. Feels like you're angling for a fight. Will Percy have to testify? Definitely. Is that going to be a problem? Getting his driver's license photo is too much limelight for him. This is the story of Percy Schmeisser. What a great character name. A, a true-to-life story. Um, he was a farmer, very understated, very quiet man who'd been farming uh, for generations uh, with his family, his father and his grandfather before him. They take on big agricultural giant Monsanto uh, when that company's genetically modified canola is discovered in the farmer's crops. Um, as he speaks out against the company's business pra practices, he realises he's representing thousands of other disenfranchised farmers around the world fighting the same battle. Um, this made big headlines. It went all the way to the Supreme Court, spoiler alert, um, but uh, what you have here is a, a terrific sort of, um, as the title suggests, David versus Goliath story with Christopher Walken bringing none of his tics, none of his um, very uh, New York kind of uh, chatter to this role. He is a very understated Percy Schmeiser um, and he's terrific in this part. Um, he's joined on screen by Zach Braff, who I guess was once destined for big things, now seems to be doing some good work in character parts mostly. He plays the lawyer who comes along for the ride and suddenly finds himself facing off against the Supreme Court judges in a battle against Monsanto. Since this happened, I think in the late 90s, um, the, the big ag giant has been uh, very much uh, seen as a, a bad guy and as a, an evil corporate entity uh, to farmers all around the world. And they've been the um, subject of many court cases. Uh, this kicked things off against them um, and Martin Donovan, as the lawyer representing Monsanto, certainly uh, embodies all the, the evil doings that that giant company um, apparently undertook, allegedly undertook. Um, I'm not going to suggest this is a perfect movie by any way. It's a very understated, almost TV movie feel to it, but it's well acted, well made, um, and tells a, a terrific story with a lot of heart and a lot of dedication. So I recommend Percy versus Goliath in selected cinemas around Australia. 
Yeah, I was just thinking about Zach Braff. There was a time period where he was like made garden stays and it kind of seemed like he was off onto a sort of low-key sort of auteurist future. But I kind of feel like the like the thing that kind of just dovetailed his career entirely was remember he tried to do a Kickstarter for a movie he was trying to get up and running and the internet completely turned on him. It feels like that very moment in time completely just derailed his entire career. Yeah, I think you're right. I think the, the controversy was that he had... Um, he had made studio films and had the backing of the the, the 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 big studio system at the time, but tried to sort of dip into the Kickstarter campaign and take money away from the real independent, real hard to you know filmmakers who do find it hard to fund their works. Um, and yeah, you're right. I think that left a bad taste in everyone's mouth, and probably in the the casting directors and producers of Hollywood who haven't really chased him for leading man roles for quite some time. Yeah, I mean, I think he sort of stepped away from chasing those roles to begin with, but yeah, it certainly didn't help. Yeah. Hey, look, there's a brand new show which is debuting on Stan this week called Republic of Sarah. Today's a great day, folks. Today, our quaint little town becomes a really big deal. A sizable deposit of coltan has been discovered. Our project does require acquisition of a few private properties. We can't just sit here and let them flatten us. The governor wants our land, and she believes it's okay to destroy us to get it. But we are going to fight back. The way to save our town is to turn into a country. This will not be easy. And there may be serious consequences. I want to stand up for what's right, make a difference. If Greylock is going to survive, we need to remind the world that lines on a map are not what define us. The titular Sarah from the Republic of Sarah is a 20-something high school teacher in the New Hampshire town of Greylock. She's living a good life, hanging out with her friends. She's got an active social nightlife and she seems to enjoy her job. Of course, being a CW drama, she also has some issues in the love department. She's in love with a friend of hers and he seems to be into her as well. But drama alert, he's about two years into mourning the death of his wife. So things for Sarah aren't easy, but they're not overly complicated either until her brother returns to town. Now, both Sarah and her brother had suffered abuse from their alcoholic mother who has recently fallen off the wagon again. He's still harboring a considerable resentment towards her and about the youth he experienced, and so when he returns to town as the face of a mining company who's got plans to set up a series of coltan mines in the town, he's there to tear down the town with a great deal of enthusiasm. Now, Sarah's against this, she loves her town, and she remembers an arcane piece of history which has it that when the boundary between the US and Canada was being negotiated with the Native Americans back in the day, a boundary had been determined by a local river. But that river actually moved during the negotiations due to rainfall, and that means that the town of Greylock is neither part of Canada or the US. If Sarah and her friends can declare Greylock to be an independent nation, they can block the mining of the town. By the end of episode one, Sarah is set to be president of the newly formed country, and we've got the premise for a new TV show. And that's actually a fantastic premise. It's big, it's bold, and it's pretty original. I've not seen this on TV. What the show does with it is another thing altogether. Now, a good rule to reviewing a TV show is to review the show for what it is rather than what it isn't, or rather what you, the reviewer, wish it to be. So, with that in mind, let's look at the show. There are some positives. The location. The town of Greylock, it's visually lush and feels immediately like a comfortable home you'd be happy yourself to live in. I deeply love the look and feel of areas in the US like New Hampshire, so I am absolute putty for a show that looks like this. Of course, being TV, this isn't actually filmed in New Hampshire, it's Quebec, but it's a passable facsimile, so I'm absolutely in. The cast itself is also mostly pretty good. They're all genuinely attractive people that have a strong charm about them. It's a cast I'm happy to spend time with. Series star Stella Baker, daughter of Aussie actor and former E Street heartthrob Simon Baker, or as I know him, Simon Baker Denny. She's a great TV talent, but like the rest of the show, she's let down by a script that feels like it's going to too much effort without going to enough effort. Everything feels like it's about 15% overridden, if the show could pull off the feat of being as effortlessly charming as some of its cast, the show would genuinely sparkle. The problem with the show is that it's built to be a very light character drama about the lives and loves of its cast in an over-the-top scenario, and that's fine for a standard character-driven drama, but this show has a strong, timely premise that's such a generic CW young adult character drama, it just isn't doing the premise any justice. And this is where I desperately want the show to be something else. To review it is to review everything it is not. In such a high fantasy premise, there's an opportunity to actually deep dive into the fantasy of seceding from established political power and starting a new democracy. 
why can't the show lean into that? The political turmoil felt in Western countries over the last 10 to 20 years reflect the fact that all of us feel like government isn't living up to the promise of providing for the people. Small, powerful, and wealthy interests are prioritized over the concerns of everyday people like you and I. It's resulting in dramatic wealth inequality, considerable environmental damage, etc., etc., etc. Why not use this show and its incredible premise as a sense of wish fulfillment? All great TV is based on wish fulfillment. Episode 2 of the show has the power going out, and Sarah needs to find an alternative power source. She struggles to find a company that can provide the supply, and turns to a local windmill power supply company. This is where the show reveals itself to be a bit of a half-baked fantasy. These are all smart characters, most of them college educated, and so as a viewer, it's astonishing to watch all the characters surprised to find the hurdles that they face in this show. They're surprised to find out the US is setting up border controls to the new country. They're surprised their existing utility supplies like power are being cut off because they haven't paid bills. And this is the thing, here's what would happen in a real world. Sarah would lead the charge to declare independence, media would swarm the town, documentary makers would be everywhere, and corporate America would be desperate to stage meetings with Sarah and the other town leaders. What an opportunity an independent country between the US and Canada would be to showcase potential city-changing technologies. Within days of seceding, Sarah would have struck a deal with Elon Musk to power the entire town with solar, the cars would all be automated, Google would be providing big fat pipe broadband to the entire town's 1,000 residents. It would be a utopia. But instead of wish fulfillment fantasy, Sarah and her friends will be wondering who exactly is the father of her friend's child. Will she be able to repair her friendship with her pal Grover? Will the local diner owner and his daughter develop a better understanding of each other? The show is really watchable, but don't expect to be terribly invested in the show either. But do expect to be shouting at the show when it embarks on yet another half-considered idea that doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. My passport, it's stamped for the Republic of Sarah, but I don't know whether I'll be staying or just passing through to somewhere more substantial where at least they have a Tim Hortons. Well, I was certainly hooked by the premise and all the things that you mentioned at the start of your review sort of had me intrigued. Um, how you finished your review were my main concerns. So I'm going to check it out um, and see what the new stand series, The Republic of Sarah, has to offer. Great review, Dan Barrett. Um, I went to Apple Plus TV to look at the very star heavy, a lot of A-list names in Lisey's story, but we haven't heard much about it. I'm on a bull hunt. What's a bull hunt? Like a scavenger hunt Scott and his brother made up when they were kids. Mrs. Landon, I just thought I'd give it one more try in person. Scott's unpublished words need to be collected, examined. You are never going to see his papers. She won't let them go. I'll get those papers for you. Stephen King wrote the novel Lisey's Story um, in 2005. It was published in 2006. He wrote it while he was recuperating. One account says he had pneumonia. The other complications after he was struck by that van in 1999. The writer's wife, Tabitha, took advantage of her husband's downtime and cleaned out his office, packing many of his half works and scribblings into boxes. Now, King, imagine this is how his workspace would look after he died. And that was an image from which his most heartfelt, and by all accounts, one of his favourite novels uh, grew. Um, the adaptation stars Julian Moore as Lisi, the widow of publishing phenomenon Scott Landon, played by Clive Owen. Um, he was struck down by an assassin's bullet two years prior. And while continuing to struggle with her grief, Lisi also wrangles a relationship with her sisters, the very short fuse Dala, played by Jennifer Jason Lee, and the often catatonic Amanda, played by Joan Allen. Um, at the same time, her late husband's scumbag colleague, Professor Dashmeal, played by Ron Cephas Jones, wants Scott's unpublished writings and acquires the services of Landon's most unstable superfan, Jim Dandy Dooley, a legitimately unhinged Dane DeHane, and we'll get to his performance later, to convince Lisi to give them up. Now, these are all real-world concerns, um, which isn't always Stephen King's uh, raison d'etre. Uh, let's move into the realm of imagination and fantasy where, where King does his best work. Um, in this sort of uh, imaginative realm um, called Booyah Moon, it's a representation of the murky psyche of the late author. Um, it's a very creepy aquatic amphitheatre populated by a, a shrieking Lovecraftian giant formed from howling humans. And it's often home to where the sister Amanda spends her worst moments. Now, Lisi begins to understand her husband's sad past, brought to life in horrific flashbacks 
to Scott's boyhood abuse at the hands of his father, uh, played by a very nasty Michael Pitt. Now, with that insight comes the ability to travel between worlds, giving Lisa control of a new destiny. And uh, she has to walk a very dark path filled with physical terrors and raw memories to understand exactly what her husband was all about. Uh, boy, the names on show in this is pretty, are pretty extraordinary. Directed by Pablo Lorraine, who, the Chilean director who did Jackie and who has uh, coming up soon the Diana Spencer story, Spencer with Kristen Stewart. In addition to all those fine actors and Kings uh, writing the own script, writing his own script for all eight episodes. Um, it's shot by Darius Conji, who's worked with Spielberg, who shot Seven, the, the, the um, David Fincher film. Um, so these are all top tier talents, all in the service of this very unwieldy story, which sets up a lot of very uh, interesting, uh, sort of, which sets up lots of very interesting uh, uh, story subplots and uh, angles with which to explore Lisey's life and particularly her grief, but instead sort of bounces back and forth between two or three different worlds, two or three different realities, and really undoes a lot of the tension that should have been there. It certainly remains watchable. Um, and there are moments, mostly from Dehane as that most celebrated of, of King's characters, the crazed fan, that are certainly watchable. Um, but it's a textbook case for me of parts being greater than its whole. So um, I binged all eight episodes um, and there are moments of it which are really, really beautiful. Um, but this seems to be a lot of people with a vision for a story that never quite gels. You've also got in the mix there J.J. Abrams as the producer. So this is a lot of A-list talent, um, not quite sure what to do with the material to make it work. Um, it, compared to recent adaptations of King's work, I think it represents a marked improvement over CBS's ill-conceived The Stand, but it certainly falls well shy of last year's HBO stunner, The Outsider. So um, definitely worth seeing for the talent involved, but all I can think of is what might have been. Yeah, look, everything you said there isn't really necessarily out of line with all the other reviews yeah. I've read for it. Uh, a lot of people talking about the opening of it is sort of decent, but it kind of falls off the wagon after about like the midway through points. What I don't understand is that Stephen King, you look at like any of his books, like they are big sort of um, unwieldy tombs. Like if you were walking down a dark alley, you could easily fend for your life by like swinging one of those books around. I understand his temptation to want to adapt his series into a extended limited series where how many episodes we're looking at here? Ten? Eight. Eight episodes. Eight. Like I understand his temptation to do it, but I don't understand why he can't really embrace the less is more. Like everything I've read about this series Seems like a movie to me. Like, I think this would be an astounding movie with a really great cast and I think would actually get some traction there. But all the reviews just talk about how flappy this is. Why not actually truncate that and have an amazing film yep. rather than this eight-episode series, which is clearly just never going to go anywhere? There's a lot of very familiar Stephen King stuff in this that has populated his movies in the past. So it, I totally agree that this could have been done even as a shorter miniseries. This could have been a four-episode run or something like that. Um it goes back over a lot of ground to the point that totally revisiting uh, or revisiting these moments um, either in the, the uh, fantasy world or in the world of the, the sisters. Poor Joan Allen spent so much of this movie just staring at the camera with this pained look on her face. Um, I, I was so grateful for Jennifer Jason Lee. She brought a real spark to her performance. Um, but there's so much in this that, that we've seen of King before and seen... I would suggest by um, slightly more unconnected or disconnected screenwriters who are able to take the essence of what makes King's um, stories work and boil them down into a, into a cinematic story. It, it really sort of struck me as being um, him tr literally trying to write a book for the screen. And you're right. It feels like big of his, it feels like one of his big unwieldy tomes in TV form. And I think that's it's, that is probably its undoing, which is such a shame because there's a lot of really good stuff in there, just not a really compelling or convincing narrative. Yeah, and the best adaptations of his work are the ones that have really truncated it down into a very manageable movie length. I can't think of anything which actually used the excess of what they had available that resulted in better films. Like you look at the most recent It's two-parter, and it kind of started out strong, but that second film was just brutal. And I think each of those films were getting close to three hours apiece. It didn't make for a better product in the end. Instead, it just kind of just sat there. It didn't really enthuse anyone in a way that I think people just could have gone to it hoping. 
But you look at the good things, which is, you know, like Spielberg adaptating and like The Shining. And, you know, there are really good examples of King's work adapted. But, you know, certainly it's never been in a miniseries or long-form TV series or limited series. Like, that's just never been the case. Lisey's story is on Apple TV Plus as we speak. Uh, And Dan Barrett, you've had a look at some sexy Spaniards eating some good food in Foodie Love. A man and a woman meet up for a date after meeting on a foodie dating app. Neither enter the relationship expecting it to be more than a casual date, but one date leads to several dates and a relationship builds. Each of the eight episodes of this Spanish HBO series take place in a different food-related space and place around the idea that food can evoke passion and serve as a connection to experiences, relationships, and emotion from the past. Now, we're never really given character names beyond he and her, so the audience is left to project a lot of their own expectations upon the characters. In a sense, the viewer is just as much out on a date with these characters as they are with each other. Now, despite the cutesy name of the series and the warm cinematography, don't go into the series expecting it to be an equally warm story about love and a cutesy couple finding their way into a relationship. Instead, the show is actually quite a bit more natural, with the tone of each dinner date shifting based on the characters' moods and expectations. Some of the dates are frostier than either party would ideally like, while others are really sexually charged, and then there are others that are simply intimate. Despite the sophistication of the characters and the structural setting, the show never really gets past the sense that you're eating from taster plates rather than a main meal. The series is a degustation rather than a singular meal in itself. Your enjoyment of the series will ultimately come down to whether you find these dinner companions to be a couple you enjoy spending time with. I'll admit I enjoy the framework of the series far more than I did either of the main characters, but like the characters on the show, this is me bringing my own baggage to the dinner table. In my past days as a single man, I know I went out with this girl on more than one occasion, and watching this show uh, made it a struggle. Foodie Love, I think, is very much worth your time, and you can find it streaming in Australia on SBS On Demand, and in the US you can find it on HBO Max. Yeah, it was made by the HBO Max Europe team as part of their um, sort of uh, decision to invest in local content. Uh, it got some great talent on board. Isabel Couchet, who does the or Quachet, who does the, the, uh, is the creator of the series, has done some fantastic film work over the years, and her first journey into the small screen uh, pays off, especially in the casting of Leia Costa and Guillermo Fennig in the lead roles. Uh, I got two episodes into this, was really enjoying it. I think that first episode in particular was, was really compelling and really compulsive watching. Um, they had a, a terrific chemistry, and they captured the nervousness of that first date really well. Um, the, uh, the device of having... Uh, messages and typing and pop up on the screen usually bugs the hell out of me because it just takes me right out of sort of this imagined world that, that cinema and television offers. But it sort of worked for this this couple and, and life in this small cafe in that first episode. So I begrudgingly accepted it working there. Um, but uh, I think the stars, especially Leia Costa as Ella, is absolutely compelling to watch. So I, I really enjoyed this and um, I'm looking forward to catching up with the rest of the episodes either on SBS On Demand or via the HBO hookup. You know, I've always really hated the on-screen texts and that sort of thing. Like, it always bugs me as a device. But I actually give it a pass when it comes to stories about dating, purely because text messages are such a fundamental part of the early stages of a relationship for certainly these days, but certainly has been for the last 20, 25 years now. So it kind of seems a little bit strange not to include that within a story. So I give it a pass there, but pretty much any other genre that tries doing it, no thank you. Well, it just, it totally drags me out of the reality of the scene. The other thing I also hate is when a camera zooms in and there's meant to be a window there and the camera and the camera sort of goes a little bit (laughs) and the camera goes through the glass. It's so stupid. It's such a, a, a distraction from the in the same way that overuse of slow motion or those sort of stylistic choices sometimes irk me because they do take it take you right out of the cinematic moment but um but like as you say it's so crucial to these two characters and it's such a personal intimate story in foodie love that that i'll, I'll give it a pass mark foodie love on sbs man and hbo if you can get it 
Which brings us to the show that is being celebrated all around the world. It's the screen-watching middle bit. This is where we uh, fairly randomly take a topic and uh, look at it from our own perspective. This week, it's Dan Barrett's turn. Dan, you're going to have a look at a series that you think defines the beginning of quote-unquote prestige TV. Over to you, mate. The golden age of television began with The Sopranos in 1999. Before then, all TV was badly produced and immature, but with The Sopranos, TV was now as good as movies. Now look, that's clearly not true, but the narrative around TV lays it out like that. The Sopranos, The West Wing, Breaking Bad, The Wire, Mad Men, etc, etc, etc. Popular discourse is that The Sopranos is where it all started. But TV, like all mediums, evolve and change. There are certainly pivot points in the course of TV trends. The Sopranos was absolutely a pivot point, but it's not like that was even the first HBO big boy pants TV show. Just a few years before that was Oz, but HBO had also had a great range of creative productions before then. Throughout the 90s, HBO had been the home of Oz, but also Sex and the City, Arliss, Dream On, The Larry Sanders Show. The generally accepted way that more seasoned TV fans look at TV dramas is to say that Hill Street Blues revolutionised TV in the early 80s. That's when TV began to get great, with the show's dark, gritty cop storylines serialised over multiple episodes. Hill Street Blues then led to St. Elsewhere, which in turn gave way to shows like Twin Peaks and NYPD Blue, ER, The X-Files, and then The Sopranos, The Wire, Breaking Bad, Mad Men, etc, etc. Of course, to say it all began with Hill Street Blues, is then to ignore shows that came before it like Lou Grant's or Peter Gunn or The Twilight Zone, and so many other other great shows. Now, the idea that the golden age of TV began with The Sopranos is an absolute myth, but why is it that we look at The Sopranos as being the start of it all? And it's probably because people started taking TV more seriously thanks to the DVD box set, which is where more complicated serialised narratives could be better appreciated. DVD kicked off around 1999, which coincidentally is right when The Sopranos first went to wear. And as a side note, TV box sets started becoming a thing in about 2000, with the first big release, which was The X-Files' first season on DVD. Now, a show that gets lost in a lot of these narratives is a show that I see as an important pivot point in US television. It's 1993's Homicide Life on the Street. The show was based on David Simon's true crime book, Homicide A Year on the Killing Street, and Homicide became a new benchmark for television. Like Hill Street Blues, the series was filmed in a quasi-documentary style. The cast of the show were almost all character actors, and this is the cast that gave Andre Brower his big break, where he impressed the hell out of pretty much everybody. But this is a series that also had amazing actors in it, like Melissa Leo and Yafet Koto, Ned Beatty, John Polito. And John Polito, he's an actor you may not know by name, but you absolutely saw him in so many Coen Brothers films over the years. In the show, there was also Richard Belzer, who was best known as a stand-up comedian then, but since then, he's taken his homicide character, Detective Munch, into countless other shows, including a very long run on Law & Order SVU. And then there was also an amazing list of guest stars over the years. The one to really watch out for was an early series appearance by Robin Williams as a grief-stricken father. Now, Homicide was brought to TV by director Barry Levinson, who was best known for films like Diner and Rain Man, and it had a really impressive writing team that included Paul Latinazio, Tom Fontana, and in later seasons, David Simon. So many other writers from this show then went on to run other well-known TV shows, and you can find a direct line from Homicide to The Wire, with David Simon taking elements of the show and reworking them into his HBO iconic series. And Simon, I don't know, did you ever watch Homicide Life in the Street when it debuted here? I did watch it initially, uh, some of the early episodes, but certainly haven't returned to it since. I remember it being, I remember I went to it as a... Uh, huge fan and and with still hill street blues sort of echoing in my mind as being one of my favorite shows of all time so i i went to it for that and remember being a little bit shocked by the grittiness of it by the handheld camera work by um some fairly confronting um, acting and and uh, situ situations so i remember it fondly but but don't recall it in detail yeah so this is a series which has it's got cinematic ambition, but it actually probably stems a bit more from like theatrical documentarians than it does from what you'd consider to be feature film at the time. So Barry Levinson, who people would know from, you know, Rain Man and Diner, a whole bunch of like, proper grown-up movies, came to television. I think this was his first series. Don't quite quote me on that. I'm pretty sure this is the case, though. Came to this, and it wanted to bring the sense that you're watching a documentary about these cops it's set in Baltimore. The entire cast is predominantly African-American, which was unheard of on television at that time outside of a few sitcoms from the 70s. 
like you never really saw a drama in primetime TV that was predominantly an African-American cast. I was going to say the other reason I went to it was that the show's creator is Paul Atanasio, who was coming, like was right in the middle of a, a huge streak there. He had written the screenplay for one of my, still one of my favorite movies in Quiz Show. Um, and he was sort of working towards the, the Donnie Brasco screenplay as well. So Atanasio was a, a big draw for me. Yeah, so this is the thing that we have a bit of a perception issue in Australia where we only got this in like about 95, but the series is actually from 93. So I think Quiz Show had come out after the series. So I think Quiz Show is like yeah, a 94 sort of film. 94, yeah. Yeah, but we got this like smack bang in the middle of the 90s. So we got this sort of post ER, we got this sort of post Chicago Hope. In fact, to my memory, this was played straight after Chicago Hope, which is how I started watching it. I think if my memory of 25 years TV scheduling holds up. Oh, it does. Don't worry. Yeah. Uh, But yeah, so I found this as a 15-year-old and my mind was completely blown by the show. I was watching some prestige shows at the time, like The X-Files and ER. But then I came across this uh, show, uh, Homicide Life in a Street, and it was really quite different. It was incredibly gritty. You've got this cast. So these are people like Andre Brower, who is at the absolute peak of his powers, People look at Andre Brower now and we recognize that like he's a good actor, but like he's absolutely incredible in this. The level of performance he's bringing on a weekly basis on this TV show is just out of the park. Probably worth noting as well as Clark Johnson, who started out as an actor in this, but went on to direct a whole bunch of TV shows and movies, including the Christopher Walken-led movie Percy, which we discussed in the segment right before then. You reviewed it just moments ago, Simon. Now, despite the absolute murderous row of cast in this, despite the talent on board, despite the legacy of the series, you cannot find it on streaming anywhere. It is almost impossible to find the show if you want to check it out. That is crazy. And I, and I do want to point out, and, and it's ridiculous that you can't find anywhere because it's a, it's a landmark show. And I am, I am right now just having a look down the uh, list of guest uh, directors who turned up for the, yep. the series you have got significant uh, big screen names, people like Catherine Bigelow, as you mentioned, Barry Levinson is in there. Ted Demi directed a couple of, uh, actor Peter Weller was a director on there. Peter Markle, Stephen Gillenhall, Bruno Kirby. Barbara Coppola, I'm pretty sure did an episode or two. Exactly right. Uh, Kathy Bates stepped up to direct an episode. Steve Buscemi, Mary Harron, who had directed, I think by that point, American Psycho. I know American Psycho was 99 was came after that yeah. one. Okay. So, so Steve Buscemi, my goodness, Lisa Kolodenko. So the talent that was drawn to this work, Oh my God, the documentarian Joe Berlinger's in there. That's an extraordinary lineup of, of talent behind the camera. Robert Harmon, that can't be the Robert Harmon that did the, the hitcher from 87. It probably was. Wow. Probably this is. is a huge lineup. <laughs> I've got to get back to this series. Sorry, mate. I interrupted. Oh, no, no, you're right. My... But you've kind of nailed exactly the point here, which is just the level of quality of people coming to work on this series was above and beyond anything you're really finding anywhere else happening in TV. And so you've got this series, which ran from 93 for seven seasons. So it takes us up to 2000. The entire point of what I want to get at with this middle segment this week is just talking about the idea of TV is on a continuum. There's no real marker saying this is when the age of premium TV began. We look at The Sopranos, but that's just not true because you had Homicide Life in the Street, which actually completely upended broadcast TV from 93 onwards. But even Homicide wasn't really the first one to come along and do stuff because there had been stuff beforehand. But if you want to look at like the sleeper, just giant of a TV show, Homicide Life in the Street is absolutely something we should be celebrating more frequently than we do. And the reason we don't is because it's almost impossible to watch. You can find it on DVD. There is a series, uh, like a seven series set of DVDs you can get for that. The Homicide wrap-up TV movie that they made, uh, that's available in discount bins around the place. I know I got my copy for about $1.99 a few years ago. Like that's around. But outside of DVD and occasionally Channel 7 will screen it as like a two o'clock in the afternoon series for a little while on one of the multi-channels. You'll find that, but like it is rare as hen's teeth to be able to come across this show. Why? Why is it rare as hen's teeth? Why is this not sort of front and center of your, your, your stands or your Netflixes or your Amazon? Look, no one really quite knows. So there's an assumption that maybe music is part of the issue, but when you watch uh, it, like. It goes down the release of so many but there isn't, great props. There isn't that much music in it either, though. So, I mean, there might be a couple of songs, but it's probably more just an issue of the rights holders. So, presumably, NBC Universal. I know that NBC owned the show outright, so I'm not quite sure exactly where it sort of sits in ownership these days. But presumably they could just put it up on their Peacock service in the US. But I suspect they need to spend a little bit of money on it to get those rights cleared and also to um, like 
just liven up the images on it. So I think they mastered it for DVD, but I'm not sure they've done much of it, like much with it since. And like the DVD masters aren't great either. If you've done your job, Dan Barrett, everyone will be in their car and down to the local JB Hi-Fi <laughs> uh, to pick up whatever copies of Homicide Life on the Streets can be found. Great sort of retro review, mate. That was um, that was a that has got my blood boiling as to why it's not available and um, where I can get it apart from borrowing it from you, my friend. Yeah, so look, I can hook you up with it, but also I think you can find clips, if not an episode or two, sneakily uploaded to YouTube. So if you do want to go looking around, you can find samples of it, but if you want to watch the whole thing, you really are going to need to get out of that physical media. Let's drag ourselves kicking and screaming into the week ahead. New on stand from June 11. Hey, that's today. Um, is a show called Eden shot on the far north coast of New South Wales. This is a very slow burn thriller set in an idyllic seaside community. Terrific young actress Bibi Betancourt plays a woman whose disappearance upends her best friend, played by Sophia Wilde, and results in a search that uncovers more than her friends and family expect. Uh, this plot line has a little bit in connection or a little bit this plot line is a little bit similar to the kids show dive club or the teen show dive club which is on 10 at the moment but from a far more sort of adult angle far more sort of young adult angle so eden uh comes to stand from june 11 if you go scrolling through the sbs on demand like lists of a lot of foreign scandi noir shows it's pretty much the exact same synopsis for all of these programs Everyone. Yeah, you're probably right. Yeah, that's true. Um, sports fans can get excited. Uh, from June 12 on the Optus Sports Network, you can watch all the UEFA, UEFA Euro 2021 games, 51 games over 30 days, 24 teams. That's where I'll be because I'm an old soccer head. Um, that's via the Optus Sports June 12 to July 12. And the 2021 Australian Swimming Trials, Amazon have an exclusive deal to bring that live and exclusive into our living rooms. Um, our nation's most elite swimmers compete for their spot at the Tokyo Olympic Games because you just want to rush off to Japan right now. Maybe you do. I'm looking forward to the Olympics, even if it's going to be a problem. Uh, commentators include such swimming greats as Grant Hackett, Nicole Livingston, and the lovely Gian Rooney. That's on Amazon from June 12 to 17. Look, it's interesting you talk about the Olympics because obviously there's been a lot of reports that a lot of people in Japan aren't really that keen on the Olympics taking place, but the yeah. country's barreling yeah. ahead with it anyway. But when you're actually watching the events on screen, you're not going to see any of the political issues that surround it. You suddenly might read about them online, but the TV presentation will just be some of the premier athletes from around the world all competing. So, you know, I mean, that'll be exciting. So it'll fulfill the needs that you have there. But also, if you are excited by the Olympics, maybe you should read up on what's happening behind the scenes. Yes. Yeah, there's lots going on there that's going to make a great the series in and of itself in years to come. Um, there's some uh, movies debuting on streaming from uh, uh, India, a movie called Skater Girl. This is the story of a, a teenage girl from rural India who discovers her, her passion for skateboarding, although she faces a very rough road as she follows her dreams to compete in at the highest level of skateboarding competition. Wonderful wonderful movie this one had done the film festival circuit before COVID hit it now comes to netflix uh from today 11th of june do check this one out uh, do you know much about the devil below dan i know absolutely nothing about the devil below <laughs> a it stars will Patton, who's a favorite of mine whoever forgets he's bad guy in no way out um this is all set deep in the appalachian mountains Underground coal mines have been burning for decades and a team of adventurers and researchers try to figure out how they started. But as is with all good horror movies, they soon discover that, quote unquote, they're not alone. Uh, that's on Netflix from the 13th of the 6th. Yeah, now it's actually an incredibly quiet week for new TVs debuting around the place. So I don't really have a lot to contribute this week. But if you are after some serialized TV, it's probably just a good opportunity to uh, take this sort of quiet week to backtrack over the last few weeks and just grab a few of the things that you may not have seen. So Mirror of East Town's the obvious thing if you never jumped onto that. But also Sweet Tooth mm -hmm. over the weekend, I think is probably a good thing to dive through. Everyone's talking about it. Did you watch it? Everyone, everyone's on board for Sweet Tooth. I haven't yet. I, I binged um, the Lisey story this week, so I wasn't able to get around to watching Sweet Tooth, but my Facebook feed and all my socials are filled with people who are just in love with Sweet Tooth, so could be the one to watch. Indeed. Hey, there is movies you can go and see in the cinema this weekend. Uh, so Dream Horse, which was... Did you end up getting along to see Dream Horse, Simon? 
No, I didn't want to go and see Dream Horse. I was going to have to catch a cab and it wasn't worth 40 bucks, I figured. So I'll catch it. I do want to see it because Tony Collette is always a draw. I love horse movies as well, although this one sort of puts a, a positive spin on the horse racing industry, which I'm not too enthused about. But it's all set in a small English town, which I am enthused about. Yeah, that's fair. What about Great White? Well, Great White is another movie that um, I guess sort of turns my favourite animal of all time, the great white shark, into a, a movie monster. Um, both Steven Spielberg and Peter Benchley have come out and said, look, we'll take the cash, but we do regret having sort of created this uh, this myth that the great white shark is a um, is a uh, just a relentless killing machine. That hasn't stopped the makers of a movie called Great White turn uh, this year's movie monster into the great white shark all over again. A bunch of people wearing bikinis and speedos crash in an aeroplane and uh, they have to sort of hang out on a raft while sharks try to eat them. Um, I saw a, a working print of this a year ago when we were programming one of the festivals I'm involved with. It was pretty bad. But um, maybe on the big screen, maybe with an edit, it's uh, they've cleaned things up. So if you like your your monsters underwater, then Great White is the movie to see. You know, there's some genres of movies which kind of come in and out of favour. So like the Westerns were big for a while and then they disappeared. And, you know, there's been a few sort of spits and starts with that, but it never really quite took hold. But people look at like the romantic comedy, wondering why it is that we don't have rom-coms on the screen anymore. Maybe they just need to find a new way into it. And if the Great White Shark is being presented as a villain, like why can't we have him as the lead of like a rom-com? Maybe that's what the genre is looking for. Yeah, that's exactly what we're looking for. A shark as a lead in a rom-com. Well done, Dan Barrett, bringing the good ideas as usual. <laughs> yeah, ho- um, ho- and- <laughs> Hollywood come knocking. Advanced, <laughs> advanced screenings around uh, in other cinemas this week. In the Heights and The Hitman's Bodyguard, officially out next week, but um, both films are getting sort of uh, early releases. Um I've seen one and not the other yet. Uh, I don't think you've seen either yet, so maybe we'll catch up with reviews of those next week. One of them I loved, one of them I'm not interested in seeing. Try and figure out. You know, I saw the trailer for the Hitman body, Hitman's Bodyguard's Wife, and I thought, you know what, that looks like a perfectly fun romp. And I was going to go off to the screening for it when I realised that it's actually the sequel to a movie I did not know existed. Yeah, yeah, uh, and which I did see. And I still forgot existed. It was a movie that went in one eye and out the other uh, a couple of years back. But it's being a bit tough on it. I had a good time. I'm a Ryan Reynolds fan. So they, him and Samuel L. Jackson together. And in the Hitman's Wife Bodyguard's Body, Wife's Guard Body, um, they've added Salma Hayek to the mix as well. So um, that could be good. I don't know. Some of the reviews out of the US, God, Variety just gave it a caning, said it was an execrable mess or something like that. So um Maybe that's exactly what we need right now, an execrable mess. Hey, just on a side note, I'm just going to derail the segment entirely. Did you see that sure. Samuel L. Jackson appeared on the Colbert Late Show a couple of nights ago and listed no. his five favourite movies that he'd starred in? Oh, really? Yeah. That's, gee, that's almost a segment in itself. What, what, can you give us some insight? Okay, so bear in mind Samuel L. Jackson, you think about his career and you're like, yeah, he's been in a lot of stuff. Uh, according to the IMDb, he's been in 194 film like films as an actor. Oh, I believe it. Yeah. Yep. Well, that's that's tough to pick five from. Let, uh, let me get uh, okay. Pulp Fiction. No. Wasn't in what Pulp Fiction wasn't his top no, five. No, one Tarantino film makes the list, but it's not Pulp Fiction. Be Jackie Brown. Yeah, which I think is the correct okay. answer, but yeah. Uh, probably, yeah. Uh, oh, God. I hope he didn't say Snakes on a Plane. Sadly Maybe he not. said Jurassic Park? No. All right. Now, I can't even think off the top of my head what they might be. Okay. Black Snake Moon? I love Black Snake Moon. No. Nah. Okay, so bear in mind, Samuel L. Jackson loves making schlocky films. Like, he loves playing around in genre. But I think when yeah. he looks at his body of work, he doesn't necessarily look at those as being the films that really define him as a artiste, Simon. Yeah. But when you look yeah, at the five films as his list uh, lists out, so you've got Jackie Brown being his Tarantino entry, uh, The Long Kiss Goodnight. Wow. Okay. Love the film. Didn't know it would be in his top five, but yeah. okay. I'm guessing that was probably a bit of a, like, marker in the sand for him where he really shifted into being a big star at that point uh, yeah probably so yeah. similarly a time to kill yeah yeah that was his big break or that was sort of his big studio yeah sort of push very serious acting role yeah, yeah. sure i can i can understand why both those would be important to him uh jackie brown as yep. i mentioned 1998's the red violin oh, God. and also the 97 film 187 so all of his favorite films took place within a three-year period Wow, 187, which was a barely released film. I think he got an Oscar nomination for it, but it, it, I think it barely had a release head here. I thought, I, I think I saw it on VHS. Uh, tough, 
teacher's story. I think he plays a, a high school teacher in it. Yeah, so 187's the code that the LA police use for a homicide. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, maybe I'm wrong. Oh, no, no, you're, okay, I, I'm so pretty sure you're right. Check, but yeah. yeah, it was like dealing with like violence in schools or something. Yeah. yeah. Playing at the Astor in Melbourne um, on Monday night is a double feature of two of the craziest films you'll ever see. John Waters' Multiple Maniacs, the story of a uh, hard heavy metal band that goes on a murder spree. And that's playing in a double feature with Straight Jacket, which is a 1964 film from the schlockmeister himself, William Castle. Um, these are films that rarely get a look on the big screen. If you can get along to the Astor, which has reopened um, down there in Melbourne after the lockdown. Uh, two films, if you're in an adventurous mood and don't mind a bit of bad taste cinema, Multiple Maniacs and Straight Jackets are certainly worth watching. Yeah, uh, playing at the Golden Age in Sydney, you've got Alphaville, the Jean-Luc Godard film. But I'm probably a bit more interested playing in the dandy cinemas around the place this weekend is Silence of the Lambs. Yeah, I thought you'd be keen. I know you're a Silence of the Lambs fan. 40th? anniversary is that still happening for silence of the lamp so it's getting a run not just in dandy cinemas i should say it's, i think it's in quite a few cinemas this weekend so do check out silence of the lambs i remember having when i first saw the film i had to park a long way away from my house for some reason had to walk back in the darkness i was shivering like a baby shivering like a cold sydney morning my friend <laughs> you must be shivering quite a bit because man i've struggled to make it through this podcast as you would well know pre-podcast edit hopefully this thing comes out okay uh this week in history before we get into this week in history um i'd like to talk about my week in cinema because i watched three films which i just wanted to say you know what maybe give these a look so we discussed on the podcast the last two weeks running the film singles i finally got around to watching it which i've seen before but yeah where did you find it? Where was well, it? Well, as we mentioned on the podcast last week, Simon, and I know you're just asking that question to remind listeners as opposed to yourself, because I'm sure you remember entirely. Segue. Uh, it has dropped on Netflix. So oh, can, good. Yeah. So I hadn't watched that since like maybe the mid to late 90s. Uh, held up pretty well for the most part. Uh, Kyra Sedwick is terribly cast because it's supposed to be a film about young people and she's never not looked like a 40-year-old woman. <laughs> but if you can work past that, it's pretty good. Uh, Bridget Fonda, though. I mean... She married and dropped off and didn't want to be an actress anymore, so she hasn't been on screen for a long time. But there was a period there where anything that Bridget Fonda was in was a must-see. She, she was one of the ladies of the 90s, for sure. Oh, look, absolutely. So 2003, she got married to Danny Elfman and then just gave up on appearing in things. She hasn't really done anything since. Mm. Yeah. Uh, also, I watched a film called Revenge of the Nerds 2, which oh my God. I've never seen Revenge of the Nerds, but somehow I was still able to keep up with this masterpiece. Revenge of the Nerds 2, that's not really a recommendation, I assure you. Uh, but no, no. Something I did see that I actually genuinely really, really loved was a romantic comedy from the 60s called Sunday in New York. And oh, wow. I didn't know the film at all before I started watching it. Like, I loved it. It was incredibly charming. And this, yeah, It really is. Yeah. So if people don't know the film, as I would have been one of these people, uh, this is a cast with Jane Fonda in the lead. It's also got Rod Taylor, Cliff Robertson, and Robert Culp in it. And it's basically a woman comes to town. She's a bit sort of frustrated that men only really want one thing. Uh, and basically she has a adventure in New York with her brother who only really wants one thing. A guy she meets on the street who really just wants one thing. And then her ex-fiance who comes chasing after her because he kind of only wants one thing, but he also wants love. I, I would, I would, the perfect double feature for me would be Sunday in New York uh, and then with Barefoot in the Park two just perfect 60s New York set romantic comedies. Um, that would be just ideal Sunday afternoon viewing for me. I love the first half of Barefoot in the Park, but the tail end of that film just completely falls off a cliff for me. It just becomes way too farcical. That's true. It does become farcical. Yeah. Um, okay. This week in history, completely owned by Steven Spielberg. Now on June 11, 1982, E.T. was released, and then in 1993, Jurassic Park set an opening weekend box office record of $502 million. On June 12th in 1981, Raiders of the Lost Ark premiered. June 14, 2015, he produced Jurassic World, which was the first film to make $500 million worldwide in its opening weekend. So um, at the height of his game... Spielberg was the king of the American summer. It's no, obviously no coincidence that early June was the time that all his films get released, but um, some of the biggest movies in box office history under the Spielberg moniker were released in the week ahead. Yeah. Uh, we've also got the opening of Greece. It is the word, Simon. 
Greece is the word, June 16, 1978. Um, June 16 was a, a fairly big day for musicals because then again on, in 1980, the Blues Brothers debuted in American cinemas. So um, Greece, huge hit. Blues Brothers, not so much, but certainly found favour with fans in the intervening years. Indeed. Let's run through a couple of birthdays. On June 11, Peter Dinklage, 1969. Uh, you may know him from Game of Thrones and that movie where he was a station agent. Uh, in 1964, you've got Paula Marshall, who I'm just, my mind is blown thinking she was born in 64. But also, I know. We all know Paula Marshall from You Should Hear How My Boyfriend Talks to Me, the great line she has from uh, that episode of Seinfeld where uh, she starts to think that Jerry may or may not be gay. Not that there's anything wrong with that. No, no, no. My father's gay. Uh, Chris Evans, he's not. He's very happily married to my mum, but that's this is the one from the show, you see. Um, Chris Evans, born in 1981, June 13th. He can celebrate his birthday. He played a character called Captain America. Neil Patrick Harris had a birthday as well, June 15, 1973, and played one of the greatest superheroes ever committed to screen, Doogie Howser, MD. Yes, he was a fine, fine superhero. I think we're at the end of a podcast, Dan. Yeah, I reckon we are as well. Simon, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk TV and movies with you as always. Read my words over at ScreenSpace, that's screen-space.net. I regularly rant about all things cinema. You can read my Lisey story review over there. Uh, I'm on Twitter at Simon R. Foster one and do visit the Screen Watching Facebook page, which I do update regularly. Indeed. And you can find me. Uh, my name's Dan Barrett. You may know that. But I'm on Twitter at the Dan Barrett. And you can start my day with my free newsletter. It's called Always Be Watching. And you can read that at alwaysbewatching.com. It's got the big stories in TV, streaming, and film. And on Fridays, you can find the Always Be Streaming newsletter, which recounts the big shows that launched during the week. And this podcast, it's called Screen Watching, and you can follow it via your favorite podcast app. Load it up now, hit the follow button, and it'll be delivered to your podcast app on a weekly basis. Dan Barrett, always a pleasure talking film, television, and everything in between with you here on Screen Watching. Do join us again next week. Thanks, everyone. Bye-bye. See you then. Uh, do you have another review that you're doing? No, I took Cousins out. I didn't get to watch it. So Okay. It's a shame. I had a great Ted Danson joke I was going to drop. <laughs> oh, oh, that's topical. The, the Ted Danson movie that no one saw from 30 years ago. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which I also never saw, but I saw the trailer for it before many videos.